0: Hello, all, and welcome to Current Account with Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. The purpose of this podcast is to bring to your attention current issues in international finance and economics, as well as provide a U.S. policy and politics angle on these different issues. Clay, over to you. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry. On this episode, I'll be talking about emerging market vulnerabilities, and I'll be lucky to be joined on the call by my colleague, Sergey Lanao, who is the Deputy Chief Economist at the IIF. Before grilling, Sergei, let me provide just a little bit of context. So the global economy, as we've discussed so many times, has clearly slowed over the last few months, while inflation has continued to, my words, not Sergey's, skyrocket. The second part about inflation has led developed country central banks, led by the Federal Reserve, to increase interest rates at a very fast rate and to signal that they're going to even increase in more in the future. So combine that together with the rise of geopolitical risks, read Russia, Ukraine, then we have a pretty tough stew for emerging markets. That stew is made up of tightening financial conditions, elevated inflation, a strengthening dollar, and geopolitical volatility. All of that adds to vulnerabilities for emerging markets and frontier markets. So with that beautiful optimistic context, let me talk to Sergey about it. So maybe I'll just start off with kind of a basic question. Can you give us an overview of the emerging markets landscape from what we call a capital flows perspective?
1: Yes, sure, Clay, and hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast. As you say, Clay, the global situation is not an easy one for any country. And of course, in this kind of environment, emerging markets tend to suffer, even if they don't display a lot of homegrown weakness. And this is a bit what we are seeing now. Big capital outflows in April and May, in the initial phases of a conflict in Ukraine and when US interest rates were going up very fast, and also in late June, we are talking about some fourteen billion dollars from EMX China, which is a significant amount for a few weeks. Outflows averaged five hundred million, which is quite a bit. It is as much as we saw, for example, in summer of twenty eighteen, when there was a bit of an EM sell off prompted by worries about global recession, slowing manufacturing. So it is a sizable episode of outflows, but it doesn't qualify as one of the biggest in history. And we are nowhere near things like the onset of COVID, the global financial crisis, or any of these uh, giant shocks. And in recent weeks, flows have been quite flat. So we are seeing a bit of stability.
0: So that's interesting. What you just kind of suggested is while there are some pessimistic signs out there, you're not completely pessimistic. You mentioned a few past times, and there has obviously been a rise in emerging market outflows. Is this time different? And if so, why is it different?
1: So it is different in the sense that every shock comes with its own characteristics. I think what makes it different from the episode everyone has in mind these days, which is the taper tantrum of 2013. It was also a time when US interest rates were going up fast. And this year, we've been in a similar situation in many respects. You know, we saw a lot of outflows back then in 2013. And the main difference between now and then is that back then, it was easy to make the case that at least Five emerging markets were very vulnerable in the sense that they had to borrow a lot of money to finance their trade deficits. They were importing a lot more than they were exporting, and they also had to refinance a lot of debt. So, capital outflows, of course, didn't help that situation at all. Today, most emerging markets don't have to borrow that much. It's still bad news that capital is not flowing to your country. It makes interest rates higher. It also makes some borrowers struggle. But compared to past episodes, the gross financing need is smaller. So it's a bit easier to handle the impact of uh, this kind of global shock. As you were saying, really comes from US inflation, Ukraine, and a bunch of things that almost no emerging market has influence (laughs) on.
0: If I understood that correctly, it's basically you're saying you got to disaggregate all this. There are countries that are going to have problems, but there are some countries that are in better macroeconomic shape, better financial shape. You mentioned current accounts. Just lumping everybody together as emerging markets is a mistake. All of that to me makes a lot of sense. But let me put one more lump and then I want to disaggregate it again. And that is part of the analysis I started with, which by the way, if you disagree with the analysis, you can certainly say that is, are we entering a global recession? And that's a hard call to make. And so it's a little unfair. Maybe Europe is, but the United States isn't, or maybe the United States is and Europe's not, or maybe China is kind of in sort of a recessionary environment, maybe not. So how do you think about that from a broader perspective? Because obviously if if we are hitting a global recession, that falls down onto countries that are a little bit more vulnerable.
1: So there is a very high risk that we go into a global recession under a broad definition of what recession means. To us, it's almost certain that there will be barely any sequential growth this year. That a lot of what you see in headline global growth numbers is about the strength of the global economy, like last year, when most countries were finally coming out of COVID, now things are really slowing, and it's unlikely that we see the global economy expanding in Q3, let's say, compared to uh, early 2022. Whether this turns into outright negative global growth is harder to call. But when you look around the world, there are quite a few reasons to think that the risk is there. China is now coming out of very strict lockdowns, so we expect some improvement in the economy. But a recession that lasted at least two months. But it's unclear that this uh, zero COVID policy is compatible with enough growth and with Growth that can lift other boats and especially uh, emerging markets. Europe is in a very special situation. Energy issues are huge. And we see, it. I think, our highest conviction call on this front is that Europe is going to go through a meaningful recession, not just a small soft patch. And then the U.S. is a country where real interest rates are going up fast. As you were saying, inflation isn't really coming down. So these situations historically lend themselves to slowdowns and sometimes hard landings.
0: All right. So let me ask you to pour in a little more on one country that you mentioned, which is China. So sometimes China is considered to be an emerging market. Sometimes China is considered to be a developed market. Uh, it's obviously a huge economy. But China's almost always different, right? We saw in past years, China has always been the strongest in terms of capital flows. They come into China. What we saw in the February-March period was flows going out of China. But now, you know, you mentioned it, like maybe they seem like they're coming out of this lockdown. Things are slightly getting better. So maybe you can go just slightly more on China. Are things looking up? And obviously, if they are, will that help some of the emerging market countries, particularly in Asia?
1: Okay, so things are improving in China from a situation that wasn't good at all for the economy with a major industrial centers under lockdown, which you know, has spillovers all over Asia very quickly, and also uh, farther afield uh, in commodity producing countries. What is going on in China that makes it look like an emerging market is that all these questions about capital flows, how confident investors are, that the economy can reopen or not, have a big impact on the exchange rate, on the financial system, and on overall confidence. And this is something you don't really see in the US, Japan, or the Euro area. How often are people discussing capital flows in and out of these countries? Not, not that much, right? It needs to be something really extreme for it to become the macro topic to discuss. And in China, these things mattered a lot. And we've seen a lot of action on capital flows. We saw unusually large outflows on the equity market in March. And that was a time when the main driving force was the real estate sector and policy uncertainty on this front. And then, of course, uh, the Ukraine shock hit everyone. Since then, we've seen equity flows improving a lot, which I think is a sign that investors are confident that at least some sectors in the Chinese economy can handle Zero COVID well. I take it as a good sign for other emerging markets and for the global economy. But as I said before, we remain cautious about China's growth outlook. And where things have got uh, very interesting is on uh, bond flows. China is a country that, in the last couple of years, attracted huge non resident flows into government bonds. It was a market that five years ago was almost close to the outside. So it was an anomaly, right? A country that is huge, GDP of more than $17 trillion, but almost no foreign participation in it. So there was a big disconnect between the size of the economy and the exposure investors have to interest rates and to government policy. There was a lot of financial opening and inflows were really large. And that even led people to start discussing, is China going to challenge the status of the dollar? Is it going to be the next uh, dominant financial power in the world? And then we saw something really interesting starting in March with war in Ukraine, which is outflows from these Chinese government bonds of a size we've never seen before and that have lasted. A good three months. And that's uh, that's a really unusual development in China and one that got our attention.
0: All right. I'm sure you're not going to look forward to this next question, but I will give it anyway, which is, all right, Sergey, I need you to name names. (laughs) Which countries do you see as the most vulnerable for some of the both flow issues and shock issues that we have seen over the last six months and we foresee kind of going forward over the next few months. Are there countries that you're thinking, boy, their, their macroeconomic situation is just not good, and so this could get bad? Or you mentioned earlier, there are some really positive stories out there. But unfortunately, this is about emerging market vulnerability. So I'd like to try to hit on some of them. So summary from uh,
1: 30,000 feet. Most emerging markets are okay. Most frontier markets are in a much harder place. On EM, there are two countries that have serious problems, and they are about their own policies. This is Argentina and Turkey. And I think there is no level of U.S. inflation. There's no level of U.S. interest rates, high or low, that fix the problems in these two places. Uh, so they, they are in a very tough situation and of course, uh, outflows add fuel to the fire, but the fire is there now the rest of big mainstream emerging markets, they look quite resilient to us, especially because as I was saying, they don't have to borrow a lot of money in norm in most normal times. Many emerging markets import a lot more than they export, so they really need these capital flows. When they don't get them, imports and domestic demand fall very fast, and that's painful for growth. We are not really there. We are concerned to some extent about Colombia, for example. India is somewhat at risk when it comes to the currency, we think, but none of these things. Looks like, you know, the fragile five of 2013, if you remember how people were discussing how higher US interest rates could kill Brazil, Indonesia, India, South Africa, we are not there. So there is a fair degree of resilience, but let's not forget that we just said that there's a fair chance the global economy slows to no growth or even recession.
0: Last question, it's related to the last one, but it's basically kind of almost, they're probably not really emerging markets, they're more like frontier markets. Our colleague, Emery Tiftek, over a number of years has really pointed out sort of the global debt increases as well as the disaggregated debt increases in a number of countries. And in some respects, we're starting to see that back up onto those countries. The managing director of the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva, just gave a speech basically pointing out, look, we're a little worried about some of the indebtedness. There are countries like Sri Lanka, which is already in real trouble, but there are other countries as well. Do you see this kind of rise in debt, along with some of the risks that we talked about earlier, affecting... These frontier markets, or maybe a little bit even the emerging markets?
1: Yes. So I think that in the frontier space, it makes sense to discuss whether there is a bit more of a systemic problem, or at least a problem that affects more than a couple of countries. In the emerging market space, I think it is very hard to argue that we are approaching a debt crisis, we are approaching something for the history books now in frontier markets things are complicated for a few reasons one is that these countries tend to borrow a lot more in dollars than emerging markets many emerging markets have developed relatively large domestic financial systems south africa for example which can fund governments and there's still a role for foreigners but It is sometimes in the country's local currency. It is sometimes not too large. When you move on to frontier markets, say Pakistan, Egypt, Tunisia, you do rely more on dollar borrowing at a time when you are already using lots of your dollars to buy food, to buy very expensive commodities. Investors start wondering, well, will there be enough money left to pay my bond? Because we all know that food is kind of important, right? So these countries are in a complicated situation. On average, the quality of policies is not as high as in emerging markets. On average, the quality of institutions, which matters a lot for sovereign risk, is lower than... In emerging markets. So for the first time in many years, this increase in debt that our colleagues have been pointing out is becoming more of an issue. And I think that, yes, there is a possibility that you see an unusual number of frontier markets in not outright distress maybe, but in complicated situations where issuing a new bond is hard. You have to think about going to the IMF, which is not an easy political decision. So we will definitely see a lot of action on this front, I think.
0: Thank you very much, Sergey. And thank you for joining us today. Before I wrap up, let me do the three, two, one. My three takeaways from what Sergey's been saying, and these are my words, not his, Emerging markets have been made more vulnerable because of the different types of shocks we have seen. Some of them are economic shocks, some of them are geopolitical shocks, and it has led towards outflows. Second, this has led towards some countries having some serious problems. Uh, Sergey mentioned Argentina and Turkey. There could be some others uh, that are quite vulnerable to a global recession, a rising dollar and change of interest rates. And three you still have to disaggregate emerging markets because there are many countries, as Sergey mentioned, that are actually in very good shape and have built up resilience over time, even though some of them still have some clear vulnerabilities. My two things that I'll be looking out for, one, how does China come out of this? Is it on a positive side or a little more negative? And we've had internal debates within IIF on how that's going to happen. And how does that spillover affect countries? And second, as the Fed and the ECB raise interest rates, does this exacerbate the indebtedness problems that countries have to the point where their liquidity problems become solvency problems? My one sports issue for the week is the Open Golf Championships, which are taking place in Scotland this weekend. This is the oldest uh, significant golf tournament uh, in the world, and it goes back over 160 years. It just so happens that the 150th anniversary of the Open Championship is being held this year. It's not 160 because there have been world wars. There have been things that have intervened in the meantime. The Open is being held at the legendary course called the Old Course, which is in St. Andrews, Scotland. And that course has existed for centuries. The Open Golf Championships are played on what are called links courses. So these are very different from what we see in the United States or many other countries for that matter, which is that there are no trees. The course is actually shaped in many ways by the trajectory of the land being next to water and wind. It leads towards these amazing roles that can happen. And if you haven't been following it, golf has been, been racked over the summer by the, the existence of different leagues in golf and whether or not the competition among them and could this ruin the game, I don't want to focus on that. Instead, I want to focus on a different concept, which is known as the GOAT. And that stands for the greatest of all time. Every sport has its arguments about over this issue, which is sort of ridiculous because who knows how different individuals would have played in different eras in a sport. But in golf, there is essentially one goat and his name is Jack Nicklaus. The only real contender for that role is Tiger Woods, who is still possibility of overtaking Jack Nicklaus, though I doubt it. And yes, I do include those greats that were around before Jack Nicklaus was even born. Jack Nicklaus is over 80 years old and certainly is not going to win any more golf tournaments. I bring up his name because this is the course, St. Andrews, that he, and by the way, Tiger Woods, helped solidify their legendariness and their goatdom, if that's actually a word. He won the Open Championship three times. By the way, we should also note that he finished second on seven different occasions. And he won it twice at St. Andrews, the, quote, Mecca, unquote, of golf. And only Tiger Woods has matched that record in the modern era. I raise it this week because the city of St. Andrews made him an honorary citizen. He is only the third American ever to receive such an honor. If you think this is ceremonial, I would ask you to actually watch Nicholas's speech in accepting this honor. He is a man that has won literally everything you can ever win in a sport. Most of the time, he's done it on multiple occasions, and it has been given probably every honor that can be bestowed upon him. In his speech, he essentially couldn't get through it because he broke down in tears. In my mind, there is a reason St. Andrews made him a citizen, and it isn't because he's the GOAT. It is because he couldn't get through such an honor without breaking down. Good luck to all the golfers out there because you have a lot to look up to. And that's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Join me next week for another episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. We'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to provide us any feedback or ideas about the show, as we're always looking to improve and make these episodes fun and relevant for the audience. You can provide feedback at podcast at iif.com make sure to tune in Monday for our next episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.